Welcome to the first days of 2023. It's the last time to take a brief look in the rearview mirror and reflect on the memorable moments and events of the past year. I wanted to take a moment to appreciate all the amazing conversations on my podcast over the last 12 months. From global crisis to personal triumphs and failures, 2022 has been a year like definitely no other. I covered various topics on the show from venture capital to clinical development, psychedelics, virtual reality, and also biophysics. In honor of all these incredible episodes, I'm indulging in a new annual tradition and starting the new year with a compilation of the best excerpts from the previous 12 months. Since I had so many fantastic speakers in over 37 podcast episodes, it was difficult for me to select just five standout conversations from the many that I've had. So this was the reason why I enlisted the help of artificial intelligence. And since chat GPT started November 30, 2022, I thought it's a good idea to ask the AI to randomly generate five numbers between 60, the first episode of 2022, and 97, the last episode of 2022. And here in this podcast and also video on YouTube, you get the five episodes that ChatGPT has selected. And I've chosen to highlight. As we enter the new year, it's also a time to look ahead and plan for what lies ahead. So at the end of this video and podcast, you will get some information about what I want to achieve with the podcast in 2023. In the words of the great C.S. Lewis, the future is something which everyone reaches at the rate of 60 minutes an hour. Whatever they do, whoever they are. So grab your holiday cheer, join me as I reflect on the past year's highlights and look ahead to what's in the store in the new year. The clock is ticking and the future is waiting for us. Here is the first episode with valuable insights from a venture capital insider. In this episode of the Beginner's Mind podcast, I delve into the strategic role of venture capital in fostering innovation and driving success in the life sciences industry. My guest in this episode was Bruno Montanari. He is a seasoned expert in the field with a background in venture capital and investment banking and a focus on the pharmaceutical, biotechnology and medical device sectors. Through our conversation, we unravel the secrets of venture capital and explore how it supports the growth of early stage startups. 
Bruno shares valuable insights on the importance of gathering information before closing deals and the role of venture capital firms in supporting their portfolio companies. We also discuss the entrepreneurship mindset between academia and industry and the current state of European venture capital. Whether you're seeking to master the art of investing in life science companies or simply want better to understand the inner workings of the pharma industry, this episode is a must listen. I like fairy tales. And uh, the great thing with fairy tales is um, that it's nice storytelling. And it's very engaging. You have the ups and downs and characters who evolve and need to go to failures together. And at the end of the day, uh, mostly a prince and a princess marry. And then the end of the story is, and they lived happily ever after. And nobody ever told how this happily ever after looked like. Uh, can you shine a little bit of light uh, how the happily ever after looks like with a VC once the deal is closed? Uh, is it that way that the VC just walks away and says, okay, I deployed my money and that's it for me and uh, I don't have any no, more questions? No, I, I, actually, um, you might think as well in terms of the storytelling, who will kiss the frog to become <laughs> a prince, okay? Is it the VC having to kiss founders and managers or the managers having to kiss the VCs, which might be uh, frogs or thoughts, okay? But this is maybe for, for another day. Um, no, of course, it's, it's just, I mean, signing um, the legal documentation for first fundraising is only the beginning of the story, okay? Mm -hmm. Now we're talking real. Now we're talking about execution and we're talking about how good of a match we will be together at the governance level to make sure we can help and build together this great opportunity. And this is where expectations will be met or fail, clearly. So it's, it's the beginning of a journey. But again, if things have been done hastily, without the right question asked, without the right analysis done, well, you are bound to have surprises and probably nasty surprises. If everyone has done a proper work at knowing each other, at understanding the business, at aligning visions, it will go better. It's not to say that there will not be tough times because again, inevitably, this is the life of the startups, okay? It's very rare, very rare that a plan is being executed uh, as expected, okay, without hiccups, without competition emerging, without data, which are not the one we expected, without people leaving the company to go to whoever and having to be replaced. Mm -hmm. And yes, all of this happens. All of this happens. Uh, but um, but it's, it's, again, it's all about anticipation. And it's it's the time spent before the, um, the signing of the legals for fundraising that probably will direct the, the track into which you will embark for this journey. Very important. And sometimes you, you, you see things coming from far away. You want people, but you say, you know what? There's no ideal deals. So let's, let's get to work on it. Let's sign the, this fundraising and we'll figure out. And there's a bit of that as well. You know, you mm -hmm. don't know exactly how it will, how it will fare. And for me, this is the excitement as well. I mean, if everything was a stepwise process already cooked and digested ahead, I think I would be so bored. I would have done something else of my life. <laughs> I mean, I like, I like the, 
I like the fact that we have to renew our thinking. We have to be always open-minded to look at what's going on in the, in the, in the field, in the areas, sometimes in very different areas, to be able to feed into the technologies and the programs, uh, to hear very interesting people that we want to add at the governance into the management. I mean, it's, it's, it's great, actually, but you have to adapt. You have to adapt and you have to have a, a strong heart and, and strong guts as well, not to say anything about any other part of our anatomy. Alors, there, there are various reasons. I would say that the best reason, and you will understand why I say the best reason, is when after trying to really understand the biology and making a bet that uh, your new drug uh, or new devices will address a given pathway or target or mechanism of action, that you really believe into it, well, actually, biology will bring some new features to this original hypothesis. And you will figure out uh, over time that actually not all patients, obviously, are the same, will react the same. And so, I mean, at the end of the day, if the investment hypothesis around biology um, is not is not proven, well, so be it. But the important thing is that uh, at the origin, your investment thesis was sound, backed by experts, key opinion leaders that really believed into it, but the proof is in the pudding. I mean, we're talking about innovation. So it's not that you can look back and say, oh, it worked before, so I know that you have all chances that it will work again. Well, actually, no, you don't know, clearly, uh, unless you are into some incremental innovation to make some things a bit better. But no, we're talking real innovation here, okay? Something that will dramatically change the way patients are being treated uh, or even diagnosed and, and monitored. Um, and so so this is, I would say, one main reason, and I would qualify it as the best reason, failure, okay? Um, then you have all the reasons. All the reasons can be competition. I mean, um, to put it simply, today, given the amount of money and new company creations and new ideas generated every day, uh, as soon as you invest into a company, the next day you have competition emerging. Of course, mm -hmm. I'm pushing it a bit, but just to say how competitive it became. Uh, and it's great at the end of the day because you cannot rest on your laurels, you know, and uh, just have a nice cup of tea every two hours and think that, okay, you have time. No, you need to really be focused and up to speed uh, on, on the program you want to, to pursue. Um, and so sometimes competition can come up with something that that is better and so you need to reinvent yourself maybe restart um, and this is where partly failures can can happen and then the worst of the failures is about bad execution mm -hmm. okay let's face it and bad executions means unfortunately uh, a management team which is not up to speed uh, with regard to how to best position a technology or program, not up to speed into the best study design uh, to really prove their case. Um, and sometimes it can come as well from governance. Okay. And it's partly execution as well. And when I mean governance, is that you've got a um, board of directors with very different people there. And sometimes the agendas are not aligned, the vision are not, are not aligned either. And it creates sometimes confusion, lack of decision-making, and you can you can suffer a lot from that as well. So you see, you have a variety of failures, and, and this is where 
but probably we'll speak about that maybe later on. But this is where experience is fundamental because experience means avoiding mistakes that you've seen and experienced before, but as well making sure that you've got the right mindset around the table with people that can work together with whom there is alchemy because they are going to be inevitably tough times to go through and we will need to collectively think in uh, in the best manner without throwing turds at each other and without wanting to be absolutely right compared to others but really raise the right questions bring the right expertise open the book of relationship that we have to help uh, and to go through those tough moments and so the human aspects of it for me, is actually critical. Sometimes even more critical than the science and the data, you see. And I have this um, this say where um, you can get it wrong and it's going to be like inverse alchemy. You have gold in the wrong hands and you turn that into lead. So you need to be super careful about the human aspects in any venture at any stage of the development of a company. Did you know that 90% of product ideas fail in clinical trials? What can sponsors of clinical trials do to increase success? While lack of efficacy is often the main reason for failure, other factors can be managed to increase the probability of success. Clinical trial failures can be costly for sponsors and investors, but taking steps to eliminate manageable sources of failure can help save time and expenses. In this episode, I am talking with Heike Schön from Loomis International and Loomis Consulting. The firms specialize in providing legal and data representation services, regulatory consulting, and customer tailored consulting and solutions for biopharmaceutical and medical device companies. Heike Schön is the managing director and co-founder of these companies and has over 25 years of experience in leadership positions in international clinical research and drug development and can provide insight into the clinical trial drug development process, regulatory requirements, and how to manage clinical trials. In this episode of the Beginner's Mind podcast, she discusses strategic considerations for setting up a clinical trial, in-house versus outsourced clinical trial study management, steps to getting a clinical trial back on track, and future trends in this area. Absolutely. And this brings uh, to another point, which is very important. Good that you mentioned the, the relationship. It is the relationship, but it's also the understanding the different cultures. I mean, sometimes we have, I mean, small biotech companies, the smallest one I worked with had three people and everything was outsourced. Yeah. <laughs> but, and they have a culture, of course, the decision-making process is without discussions. It's just done by the CEO. The CRO uh, themselves were a couple of hundred people. Of course, they had a structure, an organigram. They had very complex decision-making processes. And this can really cause a culture clash because uh, yeah, the smaller company was not used to discuss much. And then they suddenly expected decision-making power of people who didn't have any decision-making power. So it's very important for both parties to understand each other's culture and to accept the differences. And to work with the differences. And for small companies, 
you can always consider that the CRO is much bigger and much more complex in the organization than yourself. And so I think then the relationship building is even more important and, um, to, but to make sure that you understand each other on a very good level. I, and I think this is sometimes very challenging because it's not only the culture between uh, the different sizes of the company. So you have these uh, small biotechs with a few people, highly specialized, and then you have the big structures of zeros. Uh, also trials are very often set up in different countries. And uh, as we are in Europe, uh, every country is proud of their own culture. <laughs> so and language. <laughs> and, and language on top of that. Yeah. And non-native speakers, we always try to do our best in English, but let's face it, we are not native speakers. Yeah. So there is a lot of management that needs to be done. And I think uh, sponsors, any biotech company that raises funds from investors should plan that upfront Uh, and tell the investor what they believe is really necessary to get done so the technical trial is at the end of the day successful. So basically, it's not taking a Coke and popcorn and relax and sit down. It's uh, hard work that needs to be done. Yeah, it is hard work. And it's... Uh... A lot, this is, yeah, it can be easily underestimated, the resources which are needed, the budget which is needed, and maybe also additional resources you have to add to your company. I have made experience that uh, suddenly you, a company starts with a phase two clinical trial, having um, 35 sites involved in different countries, and uh, have they themselves had two people working in the finance department. And suddenly all these, these two people on top should check uh, in investigator invoices of 35 sites and it was impossible. So, I mean, these are things you have to be also prepared to outsource clinical studies or to run a clinical trial and know what additional resources you might need besides the clinical people, besides the operational people. So it's not only setting up one contract and then the work is done, unfortunately. No, unfortunately not. <laughs> can we can we come up? I mean, um, I started writing with the pandemic two years ago and uh, I did a little bit of research in how to structure articles. And what goes always very well is these three-step processes and this mm -hmm. three-step checklist is for sponsors. Uh, can we turn it into a three-step checklist for sponsors to keep studies on track? What needs to be done? What are the three most important steps in your opinion? Well, in my opinion, I think one is what we just talked about is establish a very well uh, a, a, yeah, communication tool with the CRO, with the vendors. It can be through a governance charter, but really establish good communication with the CRO and very transparent. Um, what we have experienced and what we always recommend is that a sponsor should be very clear on its expectations. Because it's often say, oh, yeah, this is a nice year. Oh, we give it to them. They're nice people. And they just hand over this uh, the uh, study. But then suddenly things are happening. Nobody talked before about it. And it was obvious that these expectations were not uh, very clearly communicated to the CRO, to the vendor. Then they do what they think is the right thing. <laughs> and this could also be a very different opinion from both sides. So I think clear expectations at the beginning, clear uh, Uh, developed roads and responsibilities would be the second part. And um, the third part is also what we uh, just talked, uh, try to develop a good business intelligence, a dashboard, make sure that you have your KPIs in place and, and work with your KPIs for the study performance. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand. Grow your business 
or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today. So it's all about communication and motivation. It's clear yeah. management and this needs senior and experienced people in the Absolutely. working yeah. at the sponsor. And this needs also then to be communicated in business plans to the investors and proper funding put in place so that these things can work. So now the big days come. So let's assume we did everything fine. We got uh, millions on the bank accounts to conduct clinical trials to do phase one and phase two studies. And... Um, The authorities, ethics committees say everything's fine, protocol well written, move forward, those your first patient. What can go wrong then, in your opinion? What are the three main reasons why so many clinical trials fail? Yeah, so the majority of the clinical trials fail It's um, because they fail in enrollment timelines. And this is, again, we go backwards, the selection of the sites. do you have the right sites ready for you to start working? Are they ready for you to start working? And is the CRO ready and initiating immediately the sites after you have a positive approval by the authorities? Mm. So this can be, and this has a lot of influence. The study startup is a key activity for your clinical trial. If you have delays in study startup, for example, the sites are not initiated in time, they are not the right sites because you did not uh, perform the proper feasibility assessment beforehand. So the later a site starts to enroll patients, the later, of course, the patients will be ready for for, um, closing again. And so as much, so the preparation time is a key part in in a clinical trial, to my opinion. And um, even though you have your positive approval, it doesn't mean that immediately the clinical trial starts. That means another planning and uh, awareness and alertness that immediately all the activities uh, are moving forward. And so, but then still, even if you're doing it, enrollment can lag behind your timelines. And this can result in, because maybe you have involved sites where suddenly they, when they see the final protocol, that they have only one or two patients who might fit into the protocol. But beforehand, they said, oh, in this indication, we have 15. So that is easy. And they don't mean it badly because they still think, of course, they have the patient. But then suddenly the protocol, which they have not seen before, maybe in such a detailed level, uh, shows that it's a reduced number. Mm-hmm. And so th- this is go- this goes back again in pre- preparing while you are recruiting sites, really to look at what, what kind of patients do they have? Does they fit in, in the uh, protocol? And um, to avoid, yeah, having wrong sites. And or sometimes when you start your clinical trial um, or you change certain aspects in a clinical trial, this can be demotivating for sites. And they also do not enroll not many patients. Or other studies are faster. In, in starting and enrolling patients, which are in the same indication. Let's let's stay a little bit with this enrollment enrollment perspective. Um, what are, in your opinion, common factors this lead leads 
to study requiring rescue when we look at uh, enrollment. Let's dig a little bit deeper because I think mm -hmm. this is important. It's, in my opinion, a management uh, management work, but I think we should give them a little bit more room here. Yes, I mean, when you start preparing your clinical trial or you talk with the CROs, you will see, CROs will always recommend that you do a proper feasibility assessment. And I think this is key to a startup um, for, a, for a clinical study. You can have one part is that the sponsor themselves have done some good research in the incidence of the disease and where the patients could be found. Uh, and then, of course, the question is whether the protocol and the patients match. So this is one part. But then the other part is the feasibility assessment. And this is normally done very well by CROs. They know sites, they know the countries, they know the incidences of the diseases. And, um, and this is a point where you should not try to save money on it because this is very important information which could also redirect your clinical study. We have uh, experiences very often that a sponsor had an idea of four or five countries and the feasibility results had a different uh, idea of countries and would we, would, uh, we should add different countries also then. And this should be taken serious because uh, the CROs have much more experience as a sponsor has. The sponsor is doing maybe one or two clinical trials and the CRO is doing 50 clinical trials in this indication. And when they talk to their sites, it can be much more realistic on the enrollment, on the uh, feasibility of the study in, in certain countries. And I think this is, uh, I, I have the impression this is very often also underestimated, the use of the feasibility results, because there could be certain interests. Yeah, I, I would prefer to go to the Netherlands, to Belgium. It's much easier. I don't want to go to certain other countries. There might be problems with regulatory. Let's here is to the third clip, discover the promising potential of psychedelic drugs to treat mental health issues. The global mental health crisis is affecting approximately 1 billion people worldwide. So basically one of eight people has mental health issues. And some believe that this number is a gross underestimate. In this episode, Dr. Jonathan Sporn, he is the CEO of Gilgamesh Pharmaceutical, discusses the unmet medical need in mental health and the promising novel psychedelic drug development sector. Dr. Sporn, a board-certified psychiatrist and assistant professor at Columbia University, delves into the history of psychedelic drug development, investors in this promising area, and the different ingredients needed to structure a novel, game-changing drug development company. He also discusses the effectiveness of psychedelic drugs in treating mental health issues, the role of artificial intelligence in psychedelic drug development and investment sentiment in the United States in developing novel innovations. Tune in to gain more insights into the potential of psychedelic drugs to help erase the mental burden in society. Did they get it right? This was the foundation basically of perception or neuroscience yeah, in your first right. company. Right. And this is, you know, in perception, you know, Jim Morrison had the doors as from the doors of perception. I took the, the, Doors of perception, perception, <laughs> and uh, and so uh, we started. Yeah, so I started perception, and um, and perception neuroscience. Uh, you know, we start and we started to to get the trials planned and preclinical work going. 
Um, and then uh, as we were doing that, uh, you know, we needed to raise money. Uh, and a couple of different folks came along, including Christian Engermeyer, uh, who was now enamored with psilocybin and psychedelics and wanted to build like the bridge bio or Roy Vant kind of model mm -hmm. and things. And, and, and he was very, him and George Goldsmith, who runs Compass, they were very intent on doing a deal to, uh, uh, to buy a, a controlling share in, in perception. Uh, and so, uh, so I negotiated a deal with them uh, and, uh, you know, so that, uh, you know, perception got funded and, you know, moved forward. So that's how that, and, and now it's in phase two uh, development, um, uh, you know, uh, which is, you know, uh, happening in the U.S. and, and Europe. I mean, it's, you know. it's, it's, it's a big success. I mean, given that uh, I would say 99 out of 100 early stage biotech fail and don't move forward. So basically your company moved up to clinical phase two already with, with the compounds. It's really congratulations. Yeah, it's great success. Right. Yeah, thanks. No, I, and now, now, now the uh, we have to. You know, I think I think it's uh, you know there's a very high probability of success for that compound. Um, uh, you know, given the data, and uh, I, you know, I think well, it'd be very surprising if it doesn't work. Um, which 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 indication does Atai focus with your uh, compounds now? It, uh, it's being developed uh, for treatment resistant depression. Uh, mm. so, and I think it could, you know, would be effective for pretty much any kind of depression or or an anxiety disorder uh, and 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 substance abuse disorders too. Mm -hmm. So so it has a pretty broad spectrum of activity, and there's That's very nice. strong strong intellectual property. So it's 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 a pretty good uh, program. Um, and um, and and now, uh, ironically, they brought people from Johnson and Johnson in <laughs> to run it. So the the circle is closed now. So it's basically yeah. Johnson Johnson back. No, back, back to really Johnson, Johnson who were like screaming at them, like, why aren't you why aren't you talking to Sporn about licensing Arketamine? And they were like, shut up, don't don't ever <laughs> That's a, that's a funny part of the story. Let me ask you one question. I'm, I'm curious. I mean, usually here in Austria or in Europe, uh, the dream of uh, scientists who got the entrepreneurial spark, found a company, sell a company, um, and the dream usually ends with uh, they live happily ever after on the islands with 10 Teslas and uh, nice houses and just retire and enjoy life. Uh, you decided to found another company. Why? <laughs> why, why did you uh, say there is something that needs to be done? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. Christian's right. Mental health problems are 100%. You see? <laughs> okay. uh, I, I, um, I mean... 
I, I don't see what I do generally as work. So I like, I like, it's just, it's extremely interesting and fun. So like, I, I, I think, you know, I don't know what I would, you know, do on the Island after I drove the Tesla around <laughs> a few times, you know? Uh, so, uh, uh, and so, uh, I think that, so what, you know, I mean, honestly, what happened was I, 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 I stayed on at perception as the chief scientific officer but it just felt didn't feel like the right fit for me. I, 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 you know, unless they were going to really take perception and make it into a itself into a larger enterprise. But you know, it was really a single product company, um, and so my the the best use of my ability wasn't really running. You know, those early stage, you know, projects. Um, you know, for that one molecule um at that point so i think i i, I so I, I didn't stay that long there after that and then i i had through you know sort of again back to my johnson johnson roots one of my close friends was the head of sort of licensing stuff for johnson johnson for neuroscience and uh he brought me to his lake house north of new york with an in, with this young uh uh medicinal chemist who and 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 he brought me because the chemist was interested in um, a molecule called tyaneptine, which is an antidepressant in Europe. It doesn't exist in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it was a Servier molecule, and and he was making new uh, salts or new new uh, or uh, some new uh, forms of tyaneptine, and um, and so and and and, they, and this guy knew that at J and J I had been instrumental in getting J&J to make new salts of tyaneptine and try, had tried to get them to develop it um, to no avail. They, 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 started a, they were going to start a company to do it, and then they lost interest somehow along the way. Another big company story. And um, so they brought me to meet him, and then we stayed in touch. And then when I realized that I was going to leave Perception, I called him up and said, we're starting a company. And, um, and, uh, and he had already also started a company that he also now has sold to a tie to Christians folks and, uh, called cures with a K. And, uh, so I said, we're going to start a company and we're going to do what I think is not, was not being done in the psychedelic space, which was to develop, to develop novel drugs with IP on the chemical matter um, that were going to really innovate the space as opposed to psilocybin is a great drug. So why don't we develop it even though it's a generic drug or MDMA is a great drug, but it's a generic drug. There's not much innovation there. There's just, you know, pushing things through the system. And then, of course, you know, pharma is not interested in those things because they can't protect them for their investment. Um, so, um, so I had this vision that we would take what we, both what we knew scientifically. Also, I realized that these chemists were really into psychedelics. And so they knew every compound that had been made and tried by people anecdotally. So like the great chemist, Sasha Shulgin, who, you know, used to work with the DEA and then, they 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 uh, and he published uh, 
his uh, books, his sort of uh, kind of recipe books on how to make psychedelics, and they, uh, you know, parted ways with him. Uh, but uh, he he had made, you know, changed Adam Adam, you know, uh, uh, by Adam these uh, psychedelic drugs, and then tried almost tried hundreds of them himself. Um, and so uh, he was sort of the you know the the, the the great sort of father of the psychedelic you know you know chemistry area, and so they knew every single molecule that Sasha what he had said about them, and and also you know there's on the web there's so many people with trip reports reporting on their you know all these psychonauts reporting on their experience with psychedelic drugs. So I realized these guys knew everything about this, and. Mm-hmm. And and they were also really good academic, you know, experienced chemists. And 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 Andrew Krugel, my partner, was you know very uh, entrepreneurial. So uh, so I said, well, what we're going to do is we're going to take molecules of different kinds, and we're going to then look at them, and then we're going to say what could be better. And so as an example, even though our ketamine is this drug, and I think is you know making great progress, we were like, well. It's good, but if it was a pill, it would be even better. So can we design a molecule that will have, you know, will, where the properties of, of it will be, uh, you know, uh, uh, commensurate with our ketamine, but it's a new molecule and it's different because it's a pill, um, because ketamine you can't uh, really use very readily as a pill because your liver chops it up uh, fast in a, in a variable way. So it, it, you know, it's the first, first pass metabolism problem. So, uh, so that's an example where we realize, like, you know, we, we can likely do that fairly easily. Um, and, um, and, 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 and given you have the right team. So I think, uh, it's not, it's uh, not chemistry is not that easy. <laughs> oh, no, right. But, it, but, but, uh, for the right chemists with the right ideas, it wasn't mm-hmm. that hard. And and it was like it and 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 what was interesting was that in the space all the people interested in ketamine were mostly clinicians and not chemists. So they were looking at ketamine, our ketamine, metabolites, but they weren't thinking about making new molecules. Um, uh, they didn't know how to do that. Uh, and 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 uh, and this is and this really hadn't caught the attention yet of too much of uh, big pharma and. Um, Jane Jay was already pot committed with esketamine. Uh, so we realized we could do that. And then we we just went down the line. We were like, okay, well, uh, you know, for example, DMT, which is, you know, one of the active components of ayahuasca, you know, which is this, you know, Peruvian, uh, uh, you know, concoction that people make that are, that's very psychedelic, but people vape DMT, but it's very, it only lasts about 10 minutes or 15 minutes. Um, and so we thought, well, DMT is a great drug, but it's so fast, it's so short acting. We weren't sure that that was long enough to really be fully therapeutic. And on the other hand, things like psilocybin or LSD last, you know, four, six, eight hours. And that's really hard on, you know, our healthcare system, right? Like, how do you, you know, have people sitting around for six hours in your clinic, you know? Uh, so, um, so we decided that what we'd like is a molecule that maybe lasted, that was like DMT, but lasted about an hour. And, and also DMT has some serotonin releasing properties, which is 
partly what MDMA does. So mm. it be this sort of warm, emotional, connected feeling. So we realized that we could have a molecule that, that was a little bit like psilocybin, but also a little bit like MDMA and lasted about an hour. So we designed a molecule with those properties. Um, and, um, and that, uh, and that's another example where now we, we think that that will, it's a hypothesis that that will have about the right, uh, you know, characteristics, uh, therapeutically for, you know, uh, neuropsychiatric kind of conditions. Um, and, and this, this has sort of been now an iterative process that there's this tremendous amount of this stuff going on in the company. You know, another example is we, we thought, well, you know, people love microdosing. But the problem with microdosing is, you know, you're taking, say, a tenth or two tenths of a dose of a psych of a full psychedelic dose of, say, LSD. But the problem is, is that, you know, you don't want to send your grandmother home with a big bottle of LSD and tell her to take one because she might, depending on the grandmother, take more than that. And um, and so, you know, and then and that so, so it's not it, it has problems as a take home medicine because of the potential uh, for it to be, uh, you know, abused or not adhered to uh, dose wise. So stay with us. We'll be right back. The Coaching Conversation 2024. This podcast is 100 percent dedicated to leadership and leadership within the workplace coaching area. We work with companies throughout the world teaching leaders how to coach their employees. This podcast is dedicated to teaching specific strategies, frameworks, coaching models, and now artificial intelligence strategies to help leaders drive greater teamwork, collaboration, cooperation, greater attitudes, better motivation, coaching career development, just to name a few. I hope you'll check out our podcast. We are almost through with this review of 2022 and are coming to the fourth clip. Revolutionizing healthcare, the role of virtual reality in diagnosing neurological diseases. Wearable devices like virtual reality headsets are increasingly used for diagnostic purposes in the healthcare industry. In this podcast episode, Adrian Brodesser, CEO of Soma Reality, a company specializing in developing VR devices for diagnostic purposes, joins to discuss the use of VR in diagnosing neurological diseases. Through digital biomarkers based on eye tracking, VR provides doctors with new tools to understand and treat conditions like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases. In the episode, Protesa also covers the challenges of entrepreneurship and the potential for VR in healthcare and sports. As VR technology continues to advance, it has the potential to revolutionize the way we approach diagnosis and treatment for a variety of conditions. Let's dig a little bit deeper into what that means, understanding the user better, better and how um, we can make use of that in therapy and diagnostics. Um, the solutions before we met that I saw on the market were when it came to understanding the user better, but pretty much uh, you can move the cursor in a game from left to right, and that's pretty much it. Um, what does it mean, understanding the user better? Mm -hmm. 
Um, yeah, so there, of course, that's a great question. There's a variety of um, uh, different approaches of understanding the user also depending on the outcome that you want. Uh, it's quite funny always when I tell people what we do, the first thing they ask is, okay, so you're in marketing. That's always the first, <laughs> because of course, that is where, you know, if you're not in that field, you always feel, okay, understanding people, it's always about understanding why or why not they're buying a product. Um, fair enough. Um, but yes, um, yes, yes, just sorry to interrupt you, but this was, it's funny because uh, with virtual reality, you can send the user through a grocery store and then make the companies aware where they are looking positioned there. <laughs> this uh, is not what you're doing. No, this is not what we're doing, but this is what we could do. So uh, mm -hmm. with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> um, yeah, so th this is exactly what we could do with our technology. Um, but uh, yeah, to make it concrete, um, so we are um, utilizing eye tracking. We're utilizing pupil dilation, small eye movements to really gain insight about the cognitive state of the user. Our first um, product, our first algorithm is a cognitive load, which basically describes uh, the capacity of your working memory. And while you're performing a task, we always um, need our working memory active. And it's, you know, the capacity is like a range depending how difficult the task is, depending how many tasks you do at the same time. And this capacity, of course, is filled or is, um, you know, um, quite easy to do. And so with that information, what we can do is a variety of things. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll give the two most exciting ones. Um, the first one is uh, measuring attention. So to, to come back to the marketing approach, uh, this would be exactly this. We're able to not only measure gaze tracking. So where is the person looking? But we are rather, we are able to combine it with when the person is looking at a certain spot in, for example, the digital environment, we're also able to exactly tell was he or she actually processing information while he or she was looking at the spot or was it, you know, just staring point blank at that specific spot, which of course has a variety of like medical insights that you can derive from that and much, much more. Um, the other part that is very exciting is cognitive load is also very much linked to learning state. So when we, uh, when I mentioned at the beginning the, the virtual reality medical trainings, um, integrating cognitive load measurements in these virtual reality trainings really enables us to better understand are there certain steps in the training process that really lead to cognitive overload, meaning that this individual really struggles with the current state of the training process, which of course is very valuable to then deep dive with, for example, an expert to really understand what the struggles are. What are the commercial, what are the commercial applications? So um, commercial applications. Um, yeah, a variety of um, commercial applications. I think um, one of the yeah most exciting ones, I can give you two examples. Um, the first one is um, also in the field of um, you know medicine, where we work with the company Intuitive. Um, they have their own research um, grant um, structure that we um, recently won, where we now... Thank you very much. Um, where we now are integrating our cognitive load algorithm to really measure gaze and cognitive load of the console surgeon. So I don't know if you've ever seen a Da Vinci robot system really in place, 
Um, but there's always this one surgeon who is um, you know, controlling the robot. And most of the time he's sitting in one corner of the room. Um, and um, they basically communicate, the, the surgeon communicates with the rest of the team via voice or um, really with you know, um, communicating. There's a screen uh, for the OR team that basically visualizes what the robot is seeing inside the patient. And so with our technology, we're now measuring gaze and um, cognitive load in order to really find out are these visualizations that we can provide additionally to the communication layer that they're currently using, so meaning voice, can we actually enhance the team dynamic leading to less errors? So this is one of the examples. Um, another example is with the company um, Lufthansa, um, where we actually use cognitive load to gain insights um, about the pilot during the training. Um, so these pilots are using virtual reality, which is, I believe, very, very interesting since it's not my field. Um, they are using virtual reality for training for the simulator. Uh, the simulator is actually very, very expensive, like 70 million. Um, very one hour in the simulator is, you know, very expensive as well. And so they're using VR in order to be ready once they enter the simulator. And we use virtual reality together with them and cognitive load measurements to really prepare them and measure where are certain um, steps in the procedure that we really need to take a closer look at before they enter the simulator. How, okay, can you explain it a little bit more in detail, um, the case with Lufthansa? What does that mean that you evaluate which steps in the procedure are necessary before they enter the simulator? So um, these simulators, so they're the, the, really the big simulators, uh, 70 million upwards, so very expensive, they run 23-7. Uh, uh, so we always like to say, 23 hours is for training. The last hour is for cleaning. So they, they're like fully booked. Um, and um, so these technologies uh, that we are now, um, you know, um, utilizing together with them, uh, virtual reality really is used in order to um, train them before, so make them comfortable with the whole uh, virtual, with the whole simulator environment. And we're using virtual reality so that they're ready once they enter the simulator, that they already have figured everything out and they can use the time in the simulator as effective as possible. Um, now, with our technology, so eye tracking and cognitive load measurements, we can now really say, okay, while the person, uh, while the pilot is training in VR, preparing himself um, for the real simulator, we really can see, is there a step during the process where we can really see uh, his or her cognitive load is really, you know, spiking because there is mental overload because he or she is really overwhelmed with some stage of the progress. And so with that insight, we then, of mm -hmm. course, can use that insight to really prepare him or her to, you know, that specific um, stage of the process and really train that specific part before they enter the simulator. So to rephrase it into my world, um... So basically, the simulators are very expensive. And when you book one hour, uh, which I believe the pilots probably need um, for uh, keeping their license. So they probably need some trainings there. Uh, it's not that you can say, okay, come half an hour later because I had I was uh, stuck in a traffic jam uh, and start preparing then half an hour later and they have the simulator. 
as long as you want it. So it's really on the point. You need to be there. You need to be on the point. You need to be ready. You need to be um, in the procedure and uh, running through your training. And then you get probably points or something and you can keep your license and uh, keep on flying with commercial uh, airlines. This is one value proposition that you help them. So basically it's like a warm up with, with your virtual reality classes. And the second thing that you can provide, uh, showing the pilot the weak points. So you say, okay, at this point, you were not really paying attention. Is that the right understanding? Yes. yes. So, of course, that is really the first step. Mm -hmm. So the end uh, solution that we're now researching together with them is actually an attention recommender system. And, of course, I don't want to go in too much details because it will get probably too complicated. But basically, um, you know, since... Uh, aviation has like these highly standardized processes, mm. which of course is not yet happening in medicine, but that's another topic. Um, so we, uh, and we can also jump into that as well if you want. Mm, sure. um, um, but uh, so we have like this very standardized process during the simulation. And so um, if we now measure, you know, which of the certain parameters during the virtual reality training, so before the simulator, are overstimulating, are overloading, we then, of course, can have a very detailed discussion why this is overloading. How do we actually make it, um, you know, adapt the training to your needs so that you are prepared for when you actually enter the simulator? And now in the next stage, these systems would actually be so smart that they understand where you're currently struggling and would be able to provide you with visual cues about the next step that he or she needs to take in the virtual environment. So this is the direction that, you know, these technologies go. So it's basically um, assisting them in training. Isn't that useful for other industries? I mean, you said healthcare before, and I'm not an expert in aviation, so it's uh, um, uh, you said that they are highly standardized and uh, I translated it into my word like other industries are not highly standardized um, not being an expert in aviation I would say healthcare also the closer it is to the patient you mentioned intuitive surgical for example I always thought that surgeries are also highly standardized processes uh, how people walk in uh, what they need to do before they can uh, uh, do the procedure on the patient, that the procedure on the patient is highly standardized. Of course, always something can happen in the procedure. No patient is the same, but I always thought also search, surgeons uh, have pro standardized procedures. Is that the wrong understanding that I got? No, no, that is definitely not the wrong understanding, but I think you mentioned the, the key point, every patient is different, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think this is really the key part. Um the cockpit of a certain airplane will always be the same. The buttons okay. are always on the exact same position. Of course, that is something we don't have in healthcare. So the level of standardization is just really, there's still a huge gap. And can you use your training environment also for that industry, for healthcare? So that uh, basically you also tell people when they run through the procedure um, where they have their weak spots. Yeah, definitely. So that is something we also do. Um, so, for example, together with the Medical University of Vienna, um, we are doing exactly what we are doing with Lufthansa, but just in a medical setting. So exactly, exactly the same value proposition. I mean, just just for brainstorming, let's get a little bit creative. We were talking about creativity in the, in the beginning. Uh, sports, for example, I very often saw... Um, people skiing downhill downhill races that they just stood there 
uh, running in the mind through the race? Is that not something that you can automate with virtual reality or enhance with virtual reality classes and giving them more information about their behavior during the downhill race, the simulated downhill race? Um, I'm not a downhill expert, but um, I know uh, definitely. So um, I can give you an example that we also think is uh, very promising, which is actually gaze training. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I mean is, since you are basically in VR involved in this digital cutoff environment, um, thinking about downhill, and again, I've never done downhill before, um, but um, you could have, uh, for example, let's keep it simple, a video capture of the path downwards, and you could actually use training methods to train when should the person, the downhill biker, I guess, uh, when should he or she actually look at that specific part? So, um, you know, what you mentioned, what these people are currently doing all in their heads with just standing and saying, okay, left, right, left, right. You could actually have that as like a mobile training laboratory where you put it on, you visually really go down the hill and then there's visual cues. Now look here, now look here, because you, of course, now the, the turn is coming in five meters. That's everything that you could that you could measure, yes. And of course, then train. And here is the final clip of the highlights episode of 2022. The role of biophysics in drug development and drug discovery with Dr. Thomas Schubert of Two Binds. Biophysics plays a crucial role in the pharmaceutical industry, particularly in drug development and drug discovery. In this episode, Dr. Thomas Schubert, CEO of TwoBind, a provider of biophysical outsourcing solutions for the pharmaceutical industry, discusses the role of biophysics in drug development and the importance of outsourcing in the industry. Biophysics, which combines the principles of physics, chemistry, and mathematics to understand biological systems, can be used to design and develop new drugs that target specific molecules and biological processes. Dr. Schubert also shares insights into the technologies and competition in the biophysics world and highlights some of Tubine's success stories in this Field. He also discusses the evolution of biophysics in drug development over the past decade and the role of biophysics in antibody research and development. Tune in to learn more about how biophysics drives innovation in the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah, the traditional business models that I learned at university and in a commercial school before was find customers first. And when you want to grow your business, then you talk to investors. This new world like we have now where investors invest in startups without any business model was quite unusual in yeah. Europe, at least uh, yeah. in the 90s or in the 80s of last century. So it's a smart move basically to find customers. Let's get a little bit into investigative podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned you mentioned uh there were for certain for several for certain reasons biophysics was not so important 10 years ago mm-hmm. and uh its its importance increased in drug development and drug discovery over the last 10 years why was it not important and why did uh the importance increase two questions yeah um so first of all one has to say that um the uh, way of um developing drugs and discovery of drugs has been changed since the last years um so 10 years before 
um, a lot of the targets that were um, out there and were worked on um, were enzymatic targets, um, which had a clear activity that you can read out with biochemical approaches. A biochemical approach is different to a biophysical approach since you use an activity that the protein has to gener generate a signal that you can read out. The biophysics is more interested in the direct interaction rather than the activity. And so a lot of the efforts were done, uh, first of all, on, on biochemical approaches. So HTS campaigns, meaning high throughput screening was done on, on a complete different, let's say, platform, right? It's, it is a different life uh, science uh, part. And biophysics was only this little tiny little piece when you had your compound and then you, you saw an activity and then it's just like this confirmation thing. Like, mm. will you please confirm that this one thing is doing something? So it was... Uh, a minor part, it's called. Of course, I'm a little bit over-exaggerating, but you know my... <laughs> but it's always good for podcasts. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you, you know, you have to make it, a, like, understandable. And of fun. Course. Science can be fun as well. So. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, sure. I mean, biophysics also played a role in the past. But now, nowadays, um, it is, for example, the case that um, um, hard-to-drug targets uh, in a cell they don't cannot be read out with a with a biochemical approach. Um, there's no other way than a direct binding event. So you need when you want to develop and discover a, a drug, you need to find a binder which binds to the protein or the RNA, whatever target mm -hmm. you're interested in, and. Since there's no biochemical approach, you need biophysics. You need to see the interaction. You need to understand how fast this goes on and off and what the affinity is of the two. And um, therefore, the attention that is now for biophysics has increased. And in addition, uh, not just the target side, so it's not just um, new protein uh, types mm -hmm. and even a complete new field, um, the RNA as a target. So it's really going away from the protein towards an RNA as a direct target for a small molecule. Mm -hmm. um, for example, you want to uh, establish a certain structure in an RNA or disrupt the structure. And as a consequence of that, the cell has, you know, is somehow modified, whatever uh, aspect of a cell you want to modify. So this was not there 10 years before. This is a relatively new um, approach. And the complete approach um, is, uh, is, is, solely is the wrong word, but heavily depending on biophysical um, approaches. And so a complete new field emerged even that was not present at 10 years. And then in addition, if you, you always have two molecules for a drug uh, development, the target and the drug. Mm -hmm. And before it was always like small molecules, some 300, 400, 500 Dalton in size, had, had certain rules to fulfill. And uh, basically you were constantly screening things and uh, making uh, efforts if, if the, the cell is somehow affected. Nowadays, it's not just this one single um, small molecule that is in, in focus. Now complete new entities come along, for example, Protex, yeah? Mm -hmm. So this, this uh, new class of molecules um, is, it has a complete different approach than a classical inhibitor. So it's not an inhibitor. So Protec is a combination of two small molecules which are linked with a linker. And the idea is to bring a, a, a protein of interest in the close proximity of an enzyme that tells the, uh, the cell to degrade that protein. So mm -hmm. the cell is told to get rid of this one specific protein. This complete concept was not present 10 years ago. 
And again, we're not talking about an activity. You need another readout and binding is one of the uh, interactions or, or one interaction is one of those things that you can read out with biophysics. So a long story short, many different changes in the environment of drug discovery have come along in the last 10 years and all of them kind of push biophysics. And that is the reason why now biophysics um, as um, the application, but also the outsourcing market is increasing constantly. And of course, um, for us, uh, that is something very uh, nice. And we were happy uh, to realize that new entities come along, new targets, new things that we can address. And um, that allowed us to build also our portfolio to serve the, uh, the customer in the best way. That's that's great. That's great to hear that uh, drug discovery is changing and it's uh, getting. I think it's also getting more and more complex, isn't it? Oh yes, absolutely. So, this classical paradigm: you have one protein, you you tackle that protein, everything is solved. No, no, no. <laughs> so nowadays, it's really a systematic approach. You need to consider a lot of more things. Honestly, the very low hanging fruits are already gone, and, mm -hmm. and now it's really there. Are absolutely fascinating uh, concepts out there. Again, we're in a lucky position because, uh, you know, uh, sometimes, let's say, when challenging things happen, uh, it is sometimes good to start with an outsourcing approach, giving an expert a first try and then integrating things into own labs. And therefore, we get in touch with a lot of state of the art or really at the edge ideas. And that is what is really fun here. So we, we are confronted with projects which are super innovative and super challenging But that's the fun. Um, that's really cool. Uh, um, is your position what what are you doing with antibodies? Is this also a part of of uh, of, of your of your business? Yeah. Um. So. Um. Let's let's make it a little bit uh, different. So, biophysics can serve to answer two types of questions. One type of question is related to the interaction of two mm -hmm. molecules A and B. So they, they, they bind, uh, they bind fast and slow, or they bind strong, or there are two of these and just one of those, and so on. So it's binding parameters, first question. And the second question is, um, for example, for antibodies, it's very relevant to stabilize an antibody. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if you imagine you have a, a drug uh, and it's in a syringe and you want to push it into uh, an arm of a, of a patient to, to cure the patient, the antibody has to be very stable in there because the, the vessel or the, the syringe or whatever, the solution has to be stored somewhere, four degrees or whatever in a liquid formulation. And this is something that you can really nicely address with biophysics. So mm. we serve not just those guys from the drug discovery um, area with the interaction analysis type of things, but we also work a lot on antibodies and um, you know um, determine the, the optimal storage conditions of an antibody. Let's let's make it in simple words. A very important point as well, but very different, because the one thing is very early R&D super uh, sometimes very okay. Uh, wow, that is a cool concept. That's fascinating. Let's think about it first and finding a you know, the formulation of a well-established antibody, um, which is already super characterized, mm -hmm. is a complete different aspect of, of what we do here. So we can also uh, add value to uh, established technology that is already on the market, uh, make it better, improve it, uh, understand it better than 
So basically, you you look in detail on how things work. Yeah, exactly. As I so as mentioned before, we use the physics phenomena to really check out what's the exact mechanism of something. And I think there are so many uh, applications, and um, you know we're so happy to be at that point because we. So we made absolutely fascinating measurements in uh, in for for example for in vitro diagnostic mm -hmm. guys uh, where we uh, helped to develop uh, tests uh, for um, an allergen in in milk or an allergen uh, cool. uh, in 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 uh, apple juice or something. So this is really fascinating. This can also be solved with biophysics. So it's a very universal approach actually biophysics. Mm. Uh, one one term came across my table in the last uh, two to four years. It's uh, ADCs, antibody drug mm -hmm. conjugates. Yeah. Does biophysics also play a role in that? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, which which role? So next question: yeah. Which role? Yeah, and so <laughs> I'm for, not satisfied for, with for sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for those guys uh, who might not know ADC, so it's mm -hmm. um, uh, basically the idea is that an antibody, which is um, a molecule that uh, can uh, bind to a certain target structure. So it recognizes a certain structure, for example, on a cell, for example, on a cancer cell, let's call it. There's a cancer cell and the surface on the cancer cell has certain structure, certain yeah, function. And an antibody is a binding molecule which recognizes um, the, um, the, um, the, the cancer cell, for example, but discriminates native cell. And of course, the idea is if I add a payload to the antibody, which is toxic, then I can uh, toxidate uh, the uh, the unwanted cell in a, in, in, a, in a cancer and leave uh, the, the the native uh, environment uh, untouched. So this is an ADC. And of course, this payload or warhead, a lot of people call this warhead, um, has to be attached to uh, the protein, so to the to the uh, antibody via chemical linking. And of course, that chemical linking is a modification of the original protein, right? Mm -hmm. And again, you need to understand, does that influence uh, the antibody or not? Is it still uh, doing what it should do? Is it still um, binding to the target? Is it still, you know, stable? Does it uh, fall apart? Is it is it suddenly, uh, does it tend to aggregate? Does it go out of the, the equation solution? And is then, of course, not a, a drug anymore? These things we can also work on, yeah. So we can really measure it and uh, get more details on that. I mean, I, I find the concept very interesting. It always reminds me a little bit on uh, about warfare. It's like an, an aircraft. So you put a bailout, missiles on an aircraft, and then you send the aircraft into the air, which basically in, in ADC terms is into the body. And they're always at a hard time to understand. I mean, how do you guarantee that the payload is released at the point of action where it's intended and not somewhere else in the body? How can you measure that? Yeah. Uh, when it's in the biological system, we think it's easy in the lab. So to say, okay, this yeah. happens and that happens, but a body is different. Uh, yeah. how, how do you measure that in a body? Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, uh, I'm not really familiar with the body. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Uh, that's maybe also something uh, uh, in general, the biophysics guys, they we don't really uh, work with a living cell and mm. we don't have that. We are completely in vitro guys. 
Um, but I know that there are um, uh, phenotypic readouts where you can um, realize if a cell is, is reacting on that antibody, if it uh, changes its uh, shape, if it uh, yeah, suffers. And um, you can see that when a cell changes the shape or even dies. So you can see that. Uh, honestly, how they measure this in, in a living body, I have to admit, I have no clue. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So your work is uh, is basically uh, in vitro, so it's basically yes. uh, on the lab bench exactly. um, before clinical development. Exactly, correct. Absolutely. Where, where is your company positioned in the value chain? Let's talk about uh, your mm-hmm. your organization. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, to my and to close this episode of the Beginner's Mind podcast, I want to give a brief outlook on the topic, what the future holds for the podcast. As we start now into 2023, I can't help but feel excited about what the future holds for our podcast. In the coming year, my team and I have set some ambitious goals to help grow and expand the podcast even further. One of our main objectives is to transform the podcast into a video show, which will provide a more effective platform for promoting the brands, science, entrepreneurship, investing, and voices of our speakers. We are actively seeking speakers who can share important information on holistic health, preventive medicine and well-being, pharma and health tech, artificial intelligence, climate change, and of course, entrepreneurship and investing, which is dear to my heart. Our other goals for 2023 include doubling our organic reach on social media, creating more media partnerships to further increase the reach of the brand and voices of our speakers, and also increasing our cash flows to support the social media marketing of our partners' brands. That's why I'm actively looking for additional partners who help bringing the quality of the show to the next level. The raised funds will be used to improve the production quality of the show. I will invest them in marketing on social media and also to further develop and increase the podcast team. We also aim to produce 50 more episodes featuring engaging speakers and get the message out into the market. While there will certainly be challenges ahead, I am confident that with hard work and determination, we will be able to achieve these goals and positively impact our community. Have a fantastic new year. See you soon on the show.